Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Prospect Magazine's podcast, Headspace. Now in its new weekly format, we bring together prospect editors and writers asking... What's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, editor of the magazine, and ever since the Brexit referendum, we've been studying the challenges of leaving the EU and asking whether the government can carry it off. I did agree. The only part of what you said that I agreed with was the timetable, which I think you're. Do you think words like nonsense are helpful in what is meant to be an informed debate? It is simply useful that I try to describe it in the best and most accurate possible terms. Argument rages on here, just as it does in Theresa May's cabinet, where she's recently been forced to make plain that Britain's not going to be in any kind of customs union after Brexit, in part due to pressure from those inside her own party who are worried about her stomach for the task. So we'll take stock of our progress in leaving the EU and ask, can the government do what it set out to and what happens if it falls short? With me in the studio today is Gisela Stewart, the former Labour MP for Birmingham Edgbaston, who is a leading light of the Leave campaign, and Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk, who's a prospect contributor and uh, a man who worries a good deal about where Brexit's taking us, and also Alex Dean, our colleague in the magazine who's been keeping a particularly close eye on all matters Brexit as the debate rages on. But before any of that... My colleague Jay Elwes has been talking to Sir John Curtis, the great cephologist that many of you will know from BBC election nights. He was down from Strathclyde University where he works um, in London recently and Jay was keen to ask him both about whether there's any appetite for a new referendum and how that new referendum will be likely to go were it to come about. Well, my name's Jay Elwes. I'm the executive editor of Prospect Magazine. I'm here with John Curtis. John, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Um, You've been uh, looking into uh, changing attitudes towards Brexit. Up Up until basically the general election last year, it was never the case that Leave were behind Remain in BMG's polls. It was usually very, very close pretty close to the result of the referendum in June 2016. Since the general election, however, it's never been the case that Remain have been behind Leave and most of BMG's polls have shown a small uh, lead for Remain. So it looks from that as though perhaps there's been a little bit of a movement from Leave to Remain and maybe perhaps enough to tilt the balance. Can we be confident that it's more than just a rounding error? It's probably more than rounding error, i.e. Uh, that um, certainly probably something a little bit has changed. 
Um, though it's fair to say that given how close the polls are at the moment, and given that the poll polls are never can be assumed to be perfectly accurate, nobody could be absolutely sure at the moment as to who would win a referendum. But the other th reason, however, I think perhaps adds to the uncertainty of the picture um, is what you discover when you look underneath the bonnet of uh, the polls and look at, well, what, what are, is it the case that Leave voters who, uh, who voted for Leave 18 months ago are now saying they do something different? Is that the reason why we now at least have this small lead for May? Short answer, no. It, the truth is that Leave voters, 87% of them say that they would do exactly the same thing again, and that's only slightly below the 91% of Remain voters who say they would do the same. And insofar as the number is a little bit smaller, it's smaller not because there's slightly more people going from leave to remain in the opposite direction. It's because some leave voters are going, you know what, you're expecting me to turn out and vote again. I've already told you what I want. No, I'm not going to bother. In other words, they're more inclined to say I'm not quite sure or that I wouldn't vote. What does, however, uh, seem to be uh, important in generating the remain need is the position or the preference that is expressed by those who didn't vote 18 months ago. They very clearly, probably by more than two to one, maybe almost as much as three to one, say they would now vote Remain rather than Leave. And that helps to generate the Remain lead. Now, of course, that does therefore mean that we've got some Leave voters who are kind of going, I'm not quite sure whether I'd vote again. We've got people who abstain claiming they now to turn out and vote to Remain. But of course, whether either group would do either of these things, we don't know. And in other words, certainly the prospects for the next referendum seem to rest unusually heavily on who might or might not be willing to turn out and vote. And that certainly, shall we say, is not the strongest of foundations upon which to rest any hopes that anybody might have that perhaps a second referendum might come up with a different result. So if that's leave and remain and how people's views are shifting, how are their views shifting on the prospect of a second referendum? Well, the answer is possibly not at all and certainly not very much. Um, We've got a couple of companies, Opinium and YouGov, who've asked the question on a regular basis. They, neither of them, hardly show any movement at all. But the crucial thing to realise, however, is that the polls, you know, you've heard this before, they disagree about how well, how many people support a, a second referendum. How much of the difference is down to the idea and how much of the difference is down to the language in which the question is framed? That is also, it's, it's, I mean, what looks to be true, if you just use the word referendum, so should we have another referendum, people go, oh, I don't want one of those, they sound a bit complicated. If you say to people, should the voters have the final, may be able to make the final decision on the deal, something that sounds empowering for the electorate, which is what the ICM question that was asked for The Guardian recently basically asked, then the proposition seems to be much more popular. So certainly voters quite like the idea of being given the final choice. They're not quite sure, however, that they like referendums. So that may, that may sound uh, contradictory, but of course um, it's all to do with the language in which things are being sold. Well, John Curtis from on a very chilly pavement outside the Royal Society in central London. Thanks very much indeed. You're welcome. Sir John Curtis there. A warm welcome to you all. Now, Gisela, you were deeply involved in the Leave campaign. When you look at how the government's doing, are you satisfied uh, with what you see? Well, I tell you what, uh, as, as a starter with you, I, I let you call me Gisela. What did I call you? Gisela. 
Oh, sorry. It's all right. It's you and Tony Blair. The only time Tony got it right is when he sacked me. So that's all right. Uh, But um, it's very curious how you phrase the question. Because I think in this whole debate, what we forget about is that this is actually much bigger than one particular prime minister or even uh, one particular parliament. You've had a, a massive referendum and in the introduction, there can the government pull it off? Well, I actually think the voters have got a legitimate expectation for their governments to implement uh, a decision they have made uh, once they have been asked. And uh, we have a number of bookends which give us a framework. So you have referendum, you have Article 50. Both things had massive majorities. Article 50 by parliament, cross-party, that we are leaving. You then have, on the other end, so the two-year period of that, you have a European election. And to me, the other really important date is the end of the uh, current financial uh, budget settlement. And that's the 2020 when the new one starts for the European Commission. And during the whole referendum campaign, we said this was about no more automatic payments, automatic payments into the EU, control of your borders, your trade deals, and your laws. And that's the window within which I expect the government to arrive at the best possible deal. It's a glacial process, glacial on both sides, by the way. I've spent 15 months with Michel Barnier negotiating some years ago, so I know how some of the things work inside the room, not just outside. So, broad, I mean, I noticed you're delicately not being drawn on on the question asked, which is how the, the, the government's doing you're saying you know there is a kind of framework that was laid out by the meaning if you like of the referendum vote in terms of you know we've got to take control back of this or that or the other as advertised by the leave um campaign and yet it does seem that things have gone a bit all over the place you know so uh, philip hammond saying we're only going to have a marginal reset of our relationship with the european economy and um, then it looked like maybe we'd be having some kind of a customs union covering goods. And now we realise we're not having a customs union covering goods. If you think that the framework is sufficiently clearly laid out, are you not at least a bit alarmed that the government seems less clear than you are? Well, again, I have never been in negotiations where you accept that one side, we, all the media reporting at the moment sort of says that anything that comes out of Brussels is uh, chiseled into stone and therefore not open for negotiation. And we kind of assume that we are going to end up with a settlement which any other country will have. The only thing which we do know is whatever the settlement is, we will end up with will be one which no other country has because it's the size of our economy. It's the fact that we have got massive agreement at this stage on how we trade and that we're leaving. No one else has done that before. But just just before you sort of finish this, can I just say Humpty Dumpty has fallen off the wall and all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put Humpty Dumpty together again. And I find that there's a whole element Mm. of people out there who go and say, we accept the people's will, but I expect a settlement which makes as if nothing has changed. No, the future will be changing. And I just wish that all the people who sort of keep trying to pretend as if nothing has happened spent all their energy in coming, being creative about what the future will look like. I think the, the, the country would be grateful for that. Ian, what do you think of that? 
A wheel in uh, denial. Was, I mean, it was terrible nonsense. So um, the word creative is always a red light with this kind of stuff. I did agree. The only part of what you said that I agreed with was the timetable, which I think you're, Do you're think spot on Do you think words like that. nonsense are helpful in what it, is meant to be an informed It is simply debate. useful that I try to describe it in the best and most accurate possible terms. So people were told you can have everything you want and nothing that you don't want. Now, that isn't really what is the case when we look at what happens, for instance, with the customs union. Ian, can I do your now, deal? We I have may, a discussion, I what I said and what do you say. I'm not answering for this. I chaired the official vote leave campaign. We said this was taking control of a number of areas. So please engage with what we said, the official leave campaign. No, it's not really about what the official leave campaign was told. Over the course of the campaign, people were given a variety of messages. Now, one of those messages, for instance, was that we would put 350 million back into the NHS. Another message was that we would do something to address the inequalities in our society. If we introduce a border for goods in Ireland, we do not address any of those things. Economically, and in terms of the cohesion of Britain, those things are not expressed. So for us to suddenly start saying, let's have some sort of creative solution to this stuff, I don't think gets us very, very far and just returns us to the world of cake and eat it which is not a very sort of advantageous negotiating posture. So, if you had a referendum result, you had a vote in Parliament, what would you do now? What do you mean? How would I vote in Parliament? No, no, no. I mean, given that uh, I'm saying the, the people at large, voters expect the government to implement their decision, what you're saying is don't implement the decision. I would absolutely say that Brexit is a terrible mistake and one that is going to cost the people of this country very dearly economically, but also politically and in the way that we relate to one another. I think the question is better asked of leavers. Leavers have had this for, what, 20 years, 30 years, these dreams of doing it. And now that it is taking place, they have shown absolutely no plans for how they would implement what they want to do. So I guess I would ask you, given that people did not vote for there to be a border in Ireland, what would you do about the customs border? Okay. I thought we were debating about the, what is happening in British politics at the moment. And what's happening in British politics is we've had a prime minister who says we're neither going to be form of a union or the customs union. You've got Michel Barnier in town to go on to the next phase. We know what the end of the implementation is. Uh, as a politician who actually wanted a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty, but, you know, uh, I now want to see how we get the best deal. Uh, I'm afraid I'm finding it difficult to engage where you're asking me questions of what other people should have done 30 years ago. Because, I tried to debate in the now. now? Yeah. What about I, the customs union? Well, I think that A, whatever deal you end up with is uh, should include goods as well as services. And what is against the customs, a customs union as currently constructed, is something it wouldn't allow us to strike our own trade deals. So you need to have a situation where you can have frictionless borders, which are possible, and allows us to do the trade deals. So that is a statement of the aim that you want to get to, but it is not a statement of the method for how you get there. Customs unions have borders. That is how they operate. They have country of origin checks. That is how they operate. It is impossible to leave a customs union and still expect for there to be no checks on the border. So I would ask again, what is your solution to this problem? Well, have you heard on the way most of the goods when, when they're traveling at the moment are actually electronically chipped and they have got borders? And these, 
Sorry, I, I can't even say. I mean, that is just the most Mickey Mouse nonsense. If, if you look at the border in Canada and the US, or you look at the border in Norway and Sweden, which is by some distance the most frictionless borders in the world, that is not how they operate. Lorries are stopped. Goods are stopped and they are checked. There is no border in the world that operates according to the rules that you have just described. If you have both sides, which in the case of Ireland, actually want to find a solution, you can. What you're doing at the moment is you are... There are laws, such as laws of gravity, which we could argue all day around, but they are not changeable. These are man-made rules. So what shape a customs union? Well, excuse me, <laughs> why, why are they not? I mean, all laws are man-made rules, but in order to have a customs union, one of the things you need to do is check that someone from outside of the trade deal is not accessing it, and that the correct tariffs are being paid. I mean, to say that, I mean, the, the law against murder is a man-made deal. To start comparing it to gravity doesn't get us anywhere in discussing criminal justice. Let's stop just for a minute and, and bring in Alex. You can hear, Alex, that this, this trench is, is dug deep and still much where it was. What's your take as someone who follows the ins and outs of this on how far things have really shifted? Um, Ian's saying some things aren't possible that Gisela is saying aren't. My own feeling is the last week or two we've seen a bit of movement, you know, in terms of what a bit more of a signal than we've had before on what the Prime Minister thinks might be possible. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I don't know whether I think what the Prime Minister thinks might be possible tells us that much about what is possible, um, but I think we've seen some shift on that. Um, my kind of main reading of all this is that the phase one, there were kind of lots of government mistakes made, and one of the biggest mistakes we made in phase one of negotiation was um, we spent... We wasted time, kind of frittered away time, stress testing the EU position and kind of trying to nudge out room here and nudge out room there. And it took us kind of weeks and weeks and months and months to work out that actually on kind of hard red lines set out from the start in the EU negotiating mandate, um, it means what it says. Um, and now I worry that as phase two kind of, as we turn to phase two and it's kind of gets underway, um, we're at risk of making kind of a version of the same mistake again. So just for the uninitiated, so you mean we were saying, oh, maybe they'll give us a bit more wiggle room on what, what money we need to pay and when, that kind of thing. And yeah. in the end, we had to fault. Yeah, um, so the divorce what, bill is a classic example. And what now? No, but can I challenge you on that one? About uh, last year in the summer, uh, I remember being together with some people who I negotiated with in Brussels, and they said, broadly speaking, there's an acceptance. Uh, that we've got budgetary commitments, which we will honour. There's broadly an acceptance that after the two-year period, uh, which is the end of Article 50, you will have to have an implementation period about the practicalities. We're now drilling down on that. But these things were... The, the, the real debate is still... And this is the discussion about Ian. I mean, just only have to look at your face. You kind of still think that I'm some two-headed monster who's misled... Uh, 17.4 million of the British population and that what we really should do is undo it whereas what I think we should do is say this is going to be tricky the European Union is losing its second largest net contributor and what what we expect it to do is implement the decision whereas my sense is there's still a lot of people there who sort of think the mission should be not to implement it that's what I find so difficult I don't think you're a two-headed monster at all, actually. I thought you were one of the more impressive people on the Leave campaign. And if I was running the Leave campaign, I would have tried to deploy you rather more than you were being used. It nevertheless is the case that when it comes down to the quality of the life of the people in my country, 
It matters to me. It's mine too, you know. It matters to me intensely. Our country. Can we agree that it's our country, not mine or yours? It's ours. But I happen to be the person speaking right now. So it matters to me intensely that people who suggest very substantial change to it have detailed, deliverable plans as to how they're going to achieve it. And if they go through 18 months of failing to tell us what those plans are, it must be considered that they are being grossly irresponsible. There was something that Gisela said kind of right at the start that kind of has stuck with me since she said it, which was this idea about um, EU red lines not necessarily being kind of chiseled into stone. Um, and I think that is going to be one of the key questions um, as we move forward and kind of ties, ties in every, everything everyone's been saying. Mm. Um, the, uh, Michelle Barnier kind of uh, chats to a journalist who writes for Prospect, Christine Ockrent, who, who kind of has a profile of Barnier in this, this month's issue. Um, and he kind of was, was really quick to kind of lay down the law and say there's, there's two options, uh, two kind of base off-the-shelf models, Norway or Canada, and you've mm. got to pick one. A lesson we should have learned is that the, the, when the EU says the EU kind of says what it means, um, and we should take it seriously. And I think it's better to spend time um, accepting that and trying to put forward technical solutions um, than kind of f fighting a losing battle on lost but, causes. But, but look, uh, Michel Barnier has got a negotiating mandate, which is what he's officially sticking to. But the way the negotiating mandate is arrived at is a process. You know. In 2002 and three, I spent 15 months negotiating not only with Michel Barnier, but various others, and 24 member states, not 27, 24. And the, 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 the lasting lesson I took from that is that for 14 and a half months, there was a very logical process which looked like said, And in the last 72 hours, the most amazing deals were being struck. So it will, negotiations will always go up to the deadline. Mm. And you have to remember the other thing which we tend to forget is one of the key players, Germany, hasn't even got a government. You know, so this, 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 this notion that there's this unified one-answer block. We will also find things that for various industries, the kind of uh, priorities. So the nature, the nature of negotiations is that there is movement on both sides. So I think that that's true. And, and certainly what's true is about the timetable is that you get closer to the ending of a negotiation, especially in trade negotiations, and people just start getting very, very excited. And those last 48 hours, you see tremendous movement. The trouble here is that they're not speaking the same language. So Britain will say, for instance, well, look, we want the benefits of this. We want to you know, stay within this sort of legal system. We just don't really want to follow any of these laws. And we don't want to offer you any institutional guarantees that we will do so in the future. So if the EU worries it's going to have an open border in Ireland, for instance, and it wants to have rules against some of the produce that would come in from the US or would come in from the developing world, it's going to want checks for that. Now, if we pull out of the systems that do the checks and just say, look, mate, you know, gentlemen's agreement, I promise I'll follow the rules in future, that is not enough for the EU. And there is no scenario, there's no world where they would accept that kind of outcome. And because of that, because the positions are so far away, that typical dynamic of negotiation working towards a climax where things are achieved in the last few moments almost certainly won't be the case here. I'm so not sure I recognise your description of the UK government's position. I mean, if I look at uh, what, uh, you know, you, I think you're right uh, to say that I wish we had done and put the rights of EU citizens on the table as an offer, as an opening gambit, and I said so. 
uh, that I thought that this should be, you know, the, the certainty for people should have been the first thing. But in all those stages, what the British government actually put on the table was rule compliant. You, you make a sound as if what the British government wishes to negotiate is a kind of Wild West deal. You know, we're honoring the financial commitments. It is rule compliant. And you negotiate about what those rules are. Well, we're talking about whether you stay plugged into those laws in the future. It's not so much about whether you say right now we're going to have the same animal welfare standards. It's about whether you say, look, in 2035, not only will we have the same animal welfare standards as now, but we will follow EU laws and we will set up an independent arbitration tribunal that will establish that we are doing that. Now, if you start going down that road and really putting up the hocks, the hooks around those kind of institutions, you can make the case for continued trade on a relatively similar basis. But if you don't, if you say that we don't want to be members of the same agencies, don't want to be members of the same institutions, you can't have the same trade. Now, this has been the distinction that has been on offer throughout. We call it Canada versus Norway. Really what it is is, do you want control or do you want trade? The no, moment no, is no, coming for us on, to come no, to a decision on that. But certainly, it's not the case that the government currently has a position. Okay, on. the difference between the single market and whether it used to be GATT or any trade agreements is that all of them have got some mechanism of enforcement of rules and arbitration of rules. What is different is that the European Court of Justice has automatic supremacy. Even without that, you have different... The animal welfare is a very interesting thing because actually the British government had wanted to do something against life transport of animals for a long time and we couldn't do it because it was in the EU. You're making an assumption that... WTO and trade deals are lawless. They're not. They're no, arbitration and enforcement it's mechanisms. It's totally the opposite of the And you're assuming, you and you, let me just quickly finish that, and you're assuming that our standards outside the EU are lower. Animal welfare, which you brought up, actually mm. our entire track record is that we've always wanted higher standards of animal welfare than we've got at the One moment of the problems we have EU. actually is that if we elevate our standards outside of the EU, the amount of extra red tape that we make for our own producers, who will anyway export to an EU standard, will then create twice as much work for them as they ever take had beforehand. Me th- take me through that. Given that at the so moment for, instance, for domestic ones, If we were to say that we were going to have two different standards for how we assess nutrition on food packaging. No, no, we want, and we the want a better one. And the EU already have a set standard. You then have to make sure that extra information is supplied in one area that then goes out on two sets of products. No, you don't. It would also be the case if you're going to export now Explain to the this US. to me. If, we, if the EU does minimum standards and we have higher standards, why would you have... You wouldn't have lower standards for the EU. You would stick to the higher standard. We would, for example, not export live animals anywhere. We would have CCTV cameras in our abattoirs because we actually want higher standards. Can I we? think we should just yes. pause because I think what's abundantly clear is that the two of you have entirely different understandings of what is and isn't possible, you know, in terms of um, uh, flavours of trade arrangements, single market and so on. And Alex, don't you think what we're seeing now is exactly this same gulf in perceptions and expectations about what can and can't be done taking place across the cabinet table? And I think the thing about about the um, the discussion around the cabinet table is is kind of we've known that there are these two kind of opposing uh, warring factions in the cabinet. We've known they've been there all along, um, and and for months and months now, uh, everyone, myself included, has said things like, "Oh, they're kicking the can down the road. They're kicking the can down the road. Eventually, this is all going to come to a head, and, and the government's going to have to pick." And that's kind of been the default position that we've all said for the last few months. Um, the thing is, is that we've now run out of road. <laughs> We're actually coming up to the moment where it does have to pick. Le- I think that's great. As a as a final question, let's ask both our colleagues here. Like, you know, when they think, are we are we at crunch moment? 
now, Ian, as far as you're concerned, does May have to pick, or will she actually be able to put this thing off and avoid making the decision till a little later, maybe till September? It looks like we're getting to crunch point. I don't think it had to be this way. I think the best ally that Remainers have right now is Jacob Rees-Mogg, who, when he took over the European Research Group in on the Conservative Party, sort of a party within a party, has been much more intelligent and cerebral and strategic about forcing her to be precise in her position. Previously, only Remainers wanted her to be precise. Now, the hard Brexiters want her to be precise as well, and that pincer movement is making it very, very hard for her to continue. Do you agree with that, Geisler, or do you think, actually, we're going to have ambiguity, creative ambiguity, until quite a bit later when the deal-making, the creative stuff you're talking about, would take place? There are various stages. Uh, one is, in, as I say, Barney in town. You then will have a, a big step towards the end of this year. You will then have another one uh, when, it com- when it comes to that you need to have your broad negotiations whilst this commission is in place and of their financial budget. So it will be an incremental one. But the key thing I think we all ought to remember is that you had a referendum where the government was given a mandate and it's implementation of that, which is what matters most. Well, we're going to leave things um, there. I'm sure that this argument is going to rumble on and on. Um, The February edition of Prospect magazine, which is in the shops um, now, features an extended interview with Michelle Barnier by Christine Ockrant that we've referred to, and that's worth a close look uh, for anyone who's interested in where these negotiations are likely to go. There's also a long piece about um, the strange state of Italian politics where um, Silvia Berlusconi can return as a kind of um, stability figure. But there we are. Um, So you can pick that up in the shops. Or turn Um, to the Prospect website where we're doing stuff like this all the time. Uh, Ian, Ian's written for us some, some really good stuff. I've got something from him uh, in my drawer at the moment, actually. Um, and we're doing stuff every day on this on this sort of thing. So please do look us up. And uh, if you like it enough, you can press the subscribe button at prospectmagazine.co.uk. You know you want to. Um, thanks very much indeed um, to Giesler, to Ian and to Alex. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Jay Elwes of Prospect. And we'll again... Uh, Look forward to um, seeing all of you next time when we persuade you to tune in again. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.